Welcome to Rock is Reality. Get ready for unfiltered and unapologetic culture, entertainment, relationships, and a little bit of politics on Motor City Woman Radio. Follow Rock. <laughs> okay, so yeah, you see, as you can see, we are starting out on the black foot. Like, <laughs> welcome to Rockets Reality, and welcome to the first official historian of the city of Detroit, Jamon Jordan. Did I say that correctly, you did, Jamon? You did. Thank you. Thank okay, you for welcome, me. welcome to you. Thank you for. Um, we finally got it. I finally got him, y'all. I, I'm gonna tell y'all a story how I was talking to him, like. <laughs> Is you going to, come on, Jabon, Jabon, I'm trying. And my thing is, I know he was supposed to like, look, don't be trying to give me the tours, do no tours for free. But I'm like, I hope he don't charge for the, um, you know, to come on the podcast. So thank you. I appreciate you for being here. Glad so be welcome, here. Uh, fellow Detroiter, uh, Baba Jamon, as people call you, mm-hmm. historian, educator, um, just... Uh, and HP. 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 Right. Yeah, that's what I had to ask. I said, is he from Detroit? And uh, Joe, uh, engineer, had to alert me. He was like, no, he's from HP. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> right, so give him a clap for that. So uh, welcome, Jamon. And just first off, just want to um, commend you for all the work that you do. Give you your flowers. I'm one of those people who believe in telling people how they feel about them and how they, mm-hmm. you know, um, well, I don't feel any way about you. I understand but... <laughs> what you're saying. I, yes, yes, I you. But I do appreciate what you do because you're definitely one of the people who uh, got your boots to the ground for the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. And I really love how you represent for our city and how um, you just uh, represent just for black history, period, mm-hmm. and show that we are just a remarkable people. So. Right. Right. You're 52. Is that okay that for me right. letting out? Yep. Is that okay? Yeah, it would have been too not, late. It's, if it's I... not a secret. It's not a secret. <laughs> it would have been too late if I let it out. Right, right. But he's a, a native Detroit or H uh, Highland Parker. Yeah. Uh, married with children. That's right. Ranging from all ages and stages. Mm-hmm. Educator in the DPS system for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> now the first historian, official historian of the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. And also a professor or um, lecturer yes. at the University, not the, but University of Michigan, <laughs> my alma mater, y'all. Oh, right. So, um, so of course, when I saw that, I was like, oh, I got to get him on the show. I told oh, my right. husband, like, oh, well, he teach at Michigan. I got to get him on the show. Uh, but I just love, have um, I've followed you for a while, for about three to five years now. Mm-hmm. And I just really love, um, I'm, I don't want to say I'm a history buff, but I do. And I am intrigued about what mm-hmm. history reveals about us. Oh, yeah. And how it really, um, it, it really just like is a blueprint for our legacy. Mm-hmm. And I love how it's so many just unknown facts about us as black people and about just Detroit. And mm-hmm. I just, I love, I say it with my chest when I'm, when I go out of town, people mm-hmm. be like, where y'all from? I'm like, from Detroit and no people. <laughs> That's right. Um, there's a negative connotation. Like, right. uh, shout out to Jamil Hill, how she just was saying how she always feels like, you know, it's like this chip on our shoulder. That's right. Um, of being from Detroit because it's been such a negative stigma. Mm-hmm. And so I love how people like her and people like you, and mm-hmm. of course people like me, how we show that there's so many gems in Detroit. So right. I just want to thank you for what you're doing and tell us, how did you get into it? Like, th- let's go back to, uh, little Jamon, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. with the Kool-Aid, the cherry Kool-Aid running oh. up the block. All right. You know, 
talk about how did you get into being a history buff or an educator? All right. So I grew up on the at, the at the border between Detroit and Highland Park. My house was on the Detroit side, but I attended both school districts. So I attended both Detroit public schools and Highland Park public schools. And the great thing about growing up at that time period is the majority of my teachers were African-American. So in elementary school today, um, there are some of our students may not experience an, an African-American teacher in elementary school because mm. overwhelmingly um, um, in the predominantly African-American schools, in elementary schools, white women are the majority mm -hmm. of the teachers. Mm -hmm. They may have an African-American woman teacher, but they probably won't come in contact in elementary school with an African-American male teacher. Yeah. You, you might, they might have a principal who's an African-American male. They may have a, or, or gym. They may have a gym teacher, but none of the, um, right. your, the regular classes. But I grew up with that. So we had African-American men teacher, African-American women teachers, and we also had some white teachers. So I grew up in a, an environment with teachers who were dedicated to uh, instilling some level of pride in the students. And sometimes that pride was about being black. Mm -hmm. So, so I grew up in that. So that's part of why you know, it started out really early. And again, I, I attended both schools. So um, I attended Halley from, uh, it was Halley Elementary um, or Halley, it was really K through eight when I first got there in kindergarten. And I attended that school from K through second grade. And then it switched to a middle school. It became a middle school. That's when I switched over to Highland Park schools. Because, again, I lived on the Halley border. Magnet, middle, I remember so, when they did the whole yeah, magnet Yeah, so they switched thing, it over right? to a magnet school. So what, I was there pre-magnet. Okay, yep, okay. So I was there pre-magnet. And then uh, I went to Liberty. In that, and now I'm in Highland Park. Um, and I kind of switched off. I would go to a Highland Park school, then a Detroit public school. But I graduated from Highland Park High School. Okay. Highland Park Community <laughs> High School, class 89. He like making that right, clear. So. Right quick, Jamon, did you get to share the Rockies reality video? I think I did. I, your, um, yeah. I, let's I just double check. We want to make sure everyone yeah, is I want to be everybody in. to be able to see it. Um, going to the... So, nope. That's yeah, not that's, okay, so go back. Yep. Let me go. Uh, let's see. Yeah, we just, that's uh, just right quick. Okay, here now. we are. Yeah, yep. but we want to make sure that everybody, if you go on my page, you'll be able to to watch yeah. it and, 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 and comment. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sharing gotcha. it now awesome. on my page. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank awesome. You. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. So, I, I, so, so, so oh, yeah, let me, ahead. let me finish. So by the time I got to high school, hip hop is a major thing going on. Now I always loved reading. And again, the, the teachers were instilling um, black history, black pride into us. And then this hip hop thing kind of blew up, and I was I was I was a I was a rap um, fan from from Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> so since nineteen seventy, since um, to the hip to the hop. So, and when it went through the phase of Black consciousness rap, so when we get the to 90s. the yeah the get, golden era the by late, the way the, the late eighties really right. when we get to um, Public Enemy right um, there particularly their second album it takes a nation of millions to hold us back that came out in eighty eight. And then you get KRS-One and, and Boogie Down Productions, their albums, which uh, run from 86 and through, through the 90s. Yeah, but really, that, right. that, that, beginning, that beginning period of that Black consciousness era in hip-hop is in the late 80s. You're right. Yeah, and you're it right. continues, though, yeah. through the 90s. But it starts in the late 80s. Once we get to that period, now... With Main Source and all of that. Yeah, yeah. You got, now you got this hip-hop 
doing what some of my teachers were doing, trying to instill this black history and this black pride. And this is, of course, a music genre that I love. And so I began listening to the lyrics, writing the lyrics down, learning, going to the library, reading about some of the people that these rappers are talking about in their rap songs, people like Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X and, and the Black Panther Party. So I'm reading about this. And so I'm studying, I'm writing papers for my class. Um, and so when I graduate, I go to college and I major, I triple major at Western Michigan University in Black Studies. Um, oh, go Broncos. Okay. Yeah, go Broncos. Okay, my sister's black, black Studies, American Studies, and Sociology. So I triple majored. When I graduated, I came back to the city of Detroit. I was a social studies teacher. Um, so first I was a, a like a, a teaching assistant, a substitute teacher. Mm -hmm. I taught K through 12, but eventually I was a, a middle school social studies teacher for about 10 years. So all in all, I taught about 20 years in the classroom. 10 of those years were middle school social studies. Mm -hmm. And it would be there that I would try to do what teachers had done for me right. growing up. They had instilled that black pride, that black history, that groundedness in my own people and culture. And so I tried to do the same for my students. And what was missing when, as a teacher uh, at first was black history. It just wasn't a major part of the curriculum of schools when I got out of college and came back to the city of Detroit to be a teacher in 1999. When I got back to the city of Detroit to teach in 1999, black history was not a major part of the curriculum. Mm, of course, Martin Luther King. Unless your teacher incorporated. Right, yeah, yeah. Unless yeah. your teacher, oh, I'm sorry, right. hold on, Jamal, just right quick. Um, I need you to go to your Facebook page and okay. share, because you're sharing it from the YouTube. I'm okay. sorry, I just yeah. want to make sure we get the most. All right, so go to Rocky's Reality, Rocky's reality. Yep, on the Facebook page. Oops, Rocky's Reality. Yeah, Oh, yeah, there yep, it is. Share that, yep. yep, share that video. Yep. There we go. Yep, there okay, we go. I got it. Yep, and so, so yeah, unless, because I noticed with the teacher's, they would have to do their own and so that's thing. What I had it wasn't to do. part of the curriculum. It wasn't, it wasn't in the um, Harper, no, no. in the Hill It wasn't in the textbook. It, it wasn't, wasn't in the, the McGraw Hill. It wasn't in there. And it wasn't in the um, state um, yeah. in, the, in the state standards yep. either. So what I had to do is what your teachers and what I guess my teachers had probably done decades before was I had to incorporate it myself. Yeah. And so that's what I did. As time went on. The schools I, were te I was teaching that, that got much better about that. And eventually I started teaching at Insaroma Institute Public School Academy, which is an African-centered charter school. So black history was no problem there. Insaroma. Insaroma Institute. Okay. Yep. Insaroma Institute Public School Academy. I taught there for 10 years. Black history is, the whole school is grounded in black history and culture. Is that like Nataki Taliba, one of those so type it, schools? It was an Mark yeah, it was an, okay. one of the African-centered charter schools in the city of okay. Detroit. It started out as an African-centered uh, independent school, or what people would call a private school, so tuition-based, mm. but eventually became a charter school like Aisha Shule. In fact, it's a child of Aisha Shule. Okay. So the okay. teachers and parents who founded Insaroma came out of Aisha Shule. Right, all right? And right. So, but by the time I got there, that had already happened, and so I'm teaching there. And so, of course, there's no problem with Black history there. I'm in my element. Right. This is where that stuff is being taught. But as I got, began to teach for years, what I began to see in that school, but in most schools, Detroit's black history was not a major factor. Mm. And my students live in the city of Detroit. So it's important for them to know about the Montgomery bus boycott. It's important for them to know about the marches in Selma for voting rights. It's important right. for them to know about the Black Panther Party starting in Oakland, California. Malcolm X being the minister 
at Temple Number no. 7 in Harlem, New York. It's important for them to know Harriet Tubman leading the Underground Railroad on the East Coast. It's important for them to know all of those aspects of Black history. But Detroit is a part of all of that history. Detroit is a part of the civil rights movement. So you don't just got to learn about Montgomery and Selma. You got to know about what civil rights activism was going on in the right, city of Detroit. because we have a stop on the Underground Railroad. If you want to talk about the Underground Railroad. Until I took a field that's trip. That's right. If you want to know about the Underground Railroad, right. yes, Harriet Tubman, we got to know about her. But we got to know about the people in the city of Detroit who were part of the yep. Underground Railroad. Yep. So I began mm -hmm. taking my students on field trips to these historic sites. And as they went on these field trips to these historic sites, they were learning about their own community and how their own community had some of the history they were learning about in the textbooks. As parents were on these field trips as chaperones, they were learning. And some of sometimes they would say, hey, I've been living in this neighborhood my whole life. I never knew that was there. Yeah. And so they were learning about their own neighborhoods. And as other people, as those parents and children began to talk to people, uh, I, there was a demand for other folks to learn this history too. That's how I started Black Scroll Network History and Tours back in 2013. I love it, because I was so, about to lead into yep. I was about to lead into, mm -hmm. um, I love when guests do that. Y'all yep. go to the right, to the next little right. bullet so point I'm about to go to. Because yep. uh, congrats on that 10 years. Yes, 10 years. years. Yeah, it'll be 10 so, years in so July. So that just was born from a need because I'm sure the parents was like, hold on now. That's right. When I first started, the reality of it is, I think I started, it was it was free or dang near free. I just wanted the parents and, and uh, folks to know this history. And whatever they donated would, would was good. It wasn't originally like a real true business it was me leading some folks to learn <laughs> some of this detroit history and if they gave me a donation then that was great eventually it evolved from that to an actual business with uh, you know people being able to book and reserve tours for their groups people to join my public tours you could sign up you know facebook page and and, and eventbrite and all so it became a full-fledged business and I had been doing that for years and um, uh, and people began to seek me out. And of course, is that how it led to you start doing a documentary? Right, and, right. So let me back up just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. When you first started the tours, how did you decide where to take people? Because it is so it's vast. It, I mean, Detroit has such a right. layered history. Yeah. Like, how did you decide, okay, I'm gonna go here. People should. Is there even a starting point where people can start at? You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah. Can it be? You know. I started at the beginning. So I started where black folks in Detroit began because my mm. tours were focused on black history. Okay. So, of course, if you're talking about black history in the city of Detroit, you're covering a bunch of other history, too. Right. So it's not like you're going to not talk about Henry Ford. And you're not going to talk about the auto industry. And you're not going to talk about um, Greek town. And you're not going to. So or you're the gonna riots. Talk, yeah. You're going to so talk about all this that. other history, not right. just black history. But my focus was black history. So I started where black history started. Black history started in the city of Detroit, in the Lower East Side area of the city of Detroit, particularly in, in, the, in the areas where Africans who were enslaved in the city of Detroit were living. So you got to understand Detroit had slavery. That's the first thing. Where were they living when they were enslaved in the city of Detroit? So we started there. And so there were slaves in the north. That's right. And that's that was because that's something I learned when I was in school. Right. By the way, I was an Afro, my double major was Afro American and African studies. Oh, good, good. And I learned there was a northern yes. form of slavery that's as well. Right. People that's thought automatically since you were in the north, you were free, but no, that was not no, true. No, that definitely so, was not true. Okay, yeah. so go back. Yep. So we, it, it was from original who, so who were enslaved yep, in Detroit. African folks who were enslaved. And of course, if you got slavery, you got the resistance to slavery, you got people fighting. And of course, out of that will evolve what we know as the Underground Railroad. And the Underground Railroad is a portion of the 
fight against slavery, what we know as the abolitionist movement. So my tour started in the areas where black folks started, the Lower East Side areas that we know now today as Lafayette Park, Greektown, Elmwood Park, um, and of course, just the downtown area of the city of Detroit. So just mm -hmm. downtown Detroit. And of course, the riverfront as the Gateway to Freedom International Underground Railroad right. Monument. So that's where my tour started. These were walking tours originally. Okay. So my tours, I didn't have buses and <laughs> vans and none of that. I was just doing walking tours. You, we meet at Campus Marshes and we start walking to these historic sites. I still do walking tours, but I also do bus tours and van tours and all of that now. But originally, it was walking tours. And so we focused first on the Underground Railroad and the period of slavery in the city of Detroit. That's where we started. And then, of course, I did tours at the museums. I did walking tours inside of the museum, the Detroit Historical Museum, the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, and the DIA, the Detroit Institute of Arts. Um, so I did tours in those three venues. So they, that's how the company started, doing walking tours. Of course, since then, we cover civil rights. We cover um, Black Bottom Paradise Valley. We covered Midtown history. We cover a Boston Edison. We covered the 1967 rebellion. We cover all of the uprisings in the city of Detroit. We cover, um, of course, Motown history um, and people like Aretha Franklin. We cover that history, other celebrities, their history in the city of Detroit. So we cover almost any kind of topic that deals particularly with African-American history in the city of Detroit. And of course, we can tailor a tour for what people want. Some people want a little bit of civil rights, a little bit of Underground Railroad, a little bit of Motown, a little bit of Aretha. We can do that too. We mix them all up together. And so that's generally kind of what the family reunion tours are. They're like a hodgepodge, a little bit of each, not just all one thing. And so um, that's what I do, uh, even to this day. But in that, people began to learn about this information, newspapers and, 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 and um, journalists. And eventually I began to um, um, be, become a consultant for a number of documentaries and i'd say at this point it's it's about 30 or 40 documentaries that i've been a part of not, not all of them have ever come to air but about but a lot of them have and so i'm in a number of documentaries of course the most probably well-known documentary is the bmf documentary and it's probably the most recent one i've been involved in but i've been in a number of other ones for the history channel for um uh, pbs um for american experience for smithsonian channel so I've been in a lot of documentaries um, for um, TV One, um, BET. I've been on a number of documentaries that deal with Detroit's history. Uh, and uh, as that occurred, there were feature filmmakers who are doing feature films that sometimes touch on Detroit's history. And so they began to uh, approach me and have me to be a historical consultant for some of the feature films. And of course, um, no Sudden Move came out back in 2021, and that was probably the biggest feature film that I've been involved with, but it's not the only one, but it's the biggest one I've been involved with. And of course, um, Don Cheeto was um, the main character, and uh, he played the main character in that film. Um, Kurt Goins, the character he played, but it was a Steven Soderbergh film um, that aired on HBO Max. And so I served as the uh, historical consultant for that film. But so, yes, I've those kinds of things happen eventually. And I, I, I do tours for institutions, colleges, universities, um, public schools. And so the U of M, University of Michigan had been one of the schools that have done a lot of tours with me. 
and they brought me in as a teacher. I teach the Detroit history class. Um, it is called a, um, from Mo, from under from the underground to Motown, a course on Detroit's Black history. So I've been teaching that class at the University of Michigan since 2021. And shortly after I began teaching there, the city of Detroit appointed me as the official historian for the city of Detroit. I love it. So, and this is the first, so they made that position specifically for you. So talk <laughs> about how that, obviously they did, because you obviously have proven yourself as an authority and expert on it. So, and again, um, I appreciate you representing for the city because I'm sure, well, not I'm sure, but did you experience some biases while doing some of those documentaries, things that you had to open up producers' eyes to? to yeah. be like, you know what, the city, you know, right. you know, you had to represent for us in a, in a way probably some misnomers or, or biases or misconceptions that they had about the city. Yeah, Detroit has been presented in a limited number of ways as deviant, dysfunctional, and dangerous. Hmm. That's the way that Detroit hmm. is generally presented. And so this is a much deeper, much more richer history and culture in and around the city of Detroit that has to be brought out by people who know it. And many people come here who swoop down from Time Magazine or swoop down from HBO or swoop down from um, some other um, um, media source. They only know the, 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 the stereotype of the city of Detroit, the stigma of the city of Detroit, and they don't know the true Detroit. And so um, by helping them learn some of this history and this culture, it has opened the eyes, not only of people who swoop in, but even people here in the city of Detroit, particularly in the region around the city of Detroit, many of them don't know mm. this deeper history and they have negative connotations about the own, their own city. And so I hope to, in fact, it's more important for me to do that, to, to uncover some of our own biases about our own city mm. than it is for me for the people who are coming from outside. Mm -hmm. People from outside, if I can get some of them to change their ideas, that's great. But the people who are here in the city of Detroit, it's more important for them to know the true Detroit and the true Detroit history because it's connected to them in their everyday lives. I love that. And see, that's why I want, I want to shed a little light on the east side, west side thing. <laughs> your mind mm -hmm. okay <laughs> and i know you kind of neutral because you from highland park <laughs> but um shed a little light on that how historically how that has contributed because the theory my grandfather told me was how you know folks folks was moving to the west side and that's where the jews were living the people of the jewish community and since they were black and moving on they felt they were moving on up and that kind of created that disparity because the east side was now thought to be lower class and because we moving on up the opposite of the Jeffersons, they were moving to the east side, but we were people were moving from the east side to the west side. And so just kind of talk about that white flight and just also how Detroit really is a segregated city in a yeah. lot of way. It yeah. that know, them black bottom days, you were telling me earlier, there were it was integrated with um immigrants of all races. But yeah. how do how do we kind of progress towards some of those disparities that we have going on? Yeah. So racism is at the root of a lot of what is are still issues in the city of Detroit. Not just racism itself, but the history of Detroit's racism mm -hmm. has been a major part of um, the narrative. And really, sometimes it's unspoken, but it is undergirding what's going on. So if you're talking about the east side, west side, well, Detroit's African-American community begins on the east side. Black Bottom is an east side neighborhood. So let's be clear. It's a lower east side neighborhood. It is the neighborhood today it would have been what we now call Lafayette Park, Elmwood Park, 
Bricktown and Greektown. That would have been the historic neighborhood of Black Bottom. That's an east side neighborhood. It's east of Woodward. So that would be an east side, lower east side. We would call it much of that downtown today. But back in the day, a lot of what we call downtown was residential. Mm -hmm. It wasn't central business district. It was folks living and going to school and going to church. And so that would have been the east side neighborhood. That's where black folks started in the city of Detroit. So black, so east, the east side, particularly black bottom, is the center. It is the foundation for the black community. That's where black folks started. Now, of course, by the time we get to the 1930s, the, the, all the different groups of people who used to live in Black Bottom alongside Black folks, let's be clear, Black folks have been living in the area known as Black Bottom, the lower east side of the city of Detroit, since the 1700s. When the French arrived in 1701, they brought Africans, enslaved Africans with them. Mm. So when Antoine Lomé de la Morsuie de Cadillac arrives on July 24th, 1701, there are French slave owners who are coming. And so you get uh, Jean Rivard, you get Noel St. Alban. We say St. Alban today. Oh, Lord. Alexander Shin. I've been saying say St. Alban wrong. You've been saying it right because in Detroit, we don't <laughs> pronounce them the French. We don't use the French pronunciations. That's why we call the city Detroit instead of Detroit. Yes, right. So we right. don't use the French pronunciations. But it, but I'm just telling you what his name was right, at right. the time. Noel St. Alban, Alban. Alexander Shin. We say Shane. Oh, my God. Um, it's probably uh, what Louis Deville de Quindere. Are we saying Grashit right? No, we're not. <laughs> no, we're definitely not saying Grashit. Gratiat. We're oh, definitely Lord. not saying gra Grashit. But um, de Quindere. We say de Quinder. Lord. Um, okay. We... But these are slave owners in the okay. city of Detroit. Mm. So Antoine Bobian. We say Bobian. These are slave owners in Lord, the city of Detroit. all these names. So these Africans and indigenous people, Native Americans, are also enslaved by these um mm. these Frenchmen. So they're enslaving people. So they've got slavery. But of course, you've got slavery, you got the resistance, you got people fighting against slavery. So you got an underground railroad. So your underground, your early underground railroad sites in the city of Detroit are also in that area. So Second Baptist Church, right. um, the home of William Lambert, the home of George D. Baptiste, the home of William Webb, um, the home of some of the other leaders of the Underground Railroad in the city of Detroit, they're all in that same neighborhood as well. Bethel AME Church, when it was founded, it was in Black Bottom. St. Matthew's Episcopal Church was on the corner of St. Antoine and Congress. That's, that would have been Black Bottom. So this is this Lower East Side neighborhood. This is where Black folks live. But they don't live there alone, even when, they, when slavery is over in the city of Detroit. And they're still um, people helping others from other states escape from slavery. And we have an underground railroad in the city of Detroit. Even when that's happening, there are Irish immigrants who move to the area. Mm -hmm. German immigrants begin to move to the area. And okay. eventually German immigrants will be the majority in that neighborhood. About a fourth of those German immigrants are Jewish. So you got Jewish folks there. You got um, Polish immigrants begin coming. You have Syrian immigrants coming. And some of those Syrians would be what we would call Arab today. So mm. your, your first Arab immigrants before Dearborn, they live in Black Bottom. And of course, Greek and Italian immigrants will come at the end of the 1800s, which is how you get a Greek town. Mm -hmm. so. This is these immigrants, and they are the majority. They're European immigrants. They're being discriminated against. They, they are poor in most cases. They open small shops. They're not wealthy in most cases. They open up a, a business strip on Hastings. This is what, and they're living right alongside Black folks who are doing some of the same things they're doing. And they can't get jobs in many places because people, and I'm putting this in quotes. I'm doing the quotes, um, making my air quotes white 
Native American, Natives to the United States. That's, and I'm in quotes. They're not natives. They're descendants of immigrants, too. Mm-hmm. But they see themselves as Americans. Mm-hmm. They see these other people as foreigners. Mm-hmm. They see the Irish as foreigners. The Germans as foreigners. Mm-hmm. The Polish as foreigners. And so they're discriminating against them. But as those Polish and Irish and German immigrants and Greek immigrants and Italian immigrants have children and grandchildren, they're not from Italy. They're born here in America. Mm-hmm. They don't speak with an Italian accent or German accent. They, they're born in, in America. Not only that, they have pretty good jobs because the auto industry has picked up. Before that, the tobacco and cigar industry was big in the city of Detroit, and the building of railroad cars was big in the city of Detroit. Building of iron stoves was big in the city of Detroit. So they're making much better money than their grandparents who came from Mm. the old country. So they don't speak with an accent. They're born in America, and they make make pretty good money. They're white. They have evolved to become white mm-hmm. Americans. So they can do what their grandparents couldn't do. And so they can move out of black people. Yeah, okay. So they but can move up. They can so, so now they can mm-hmm. they housing discrimination, they're being able to transcend that. But black folks. Right, because they don't have to worry about that red line <laughs> right. and, and all of that. that black yeah. folks who are coming from the South now in large numbers during the Great Migration after 1910, particularly after Henry Ford offers five dollars a day to all workers in 1914. African-Americans are coming from the South in large numbers, but they're running into housing discrimination, despite the fact that they speak English, despite the fact Mm -hmm. that they have good jobs. They can't move wherever they want to. So one of the ways that black people do get out of the black bottom area, one of the ways is they follow Jewish migration. Mm -hmm. So as Jewish people begin to move out of black bottom into um, north of black bottom, the Paradise Valley area, Black people are able to move into the Paradise Valley area and eventually take it over and become the Black Business Strip. As 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 um, Jewish folks move to the North End, mm-hmm. African Americans begin to be able to move to the North mm-hmm. End. As Jewish people move to the 12th Dexter Linwood neighborhood, African Americans are able to move to the 12th Dexter Linwood neighborhood, and eventually Jewish people will leave the city of Detroit outright, Southfield Oak Park at mm-hmm. first, and African Americans will become the majority in Southfield and Oak Park. Those would be two suburbs that would have a predominantly two middle class suburbs that would have a predominantly African-American population. African-American migration follows Jewish migration in and around the city of Detroit. Mm. So they're moving out of Black Bottom. Black Bottom, of course, had been the discriminated neighborhood, the neighborhood that African-Americans were forced into, that they were cordoned, they were um, um, overcrowded in because of housing discrimination. So it had become run down. Being able to move out of that neighborhood on your own, I don't mean when it was destroyed and you were forced out, but being able to move out of that area on your own does did give some African Americans a feeling that they had accomplished something mm-hmm. by being able to move out of Black Bottom. And thus passing that down, and so to the as generations, that, as like, that oh, goes we better down, we done moved out. Yeah, so that it, so there is some of that, and of course, on the flip side of that, there's some resentment for people who stayed to the people who left. Mm-hmm. So you have it, it's it's not a one way tension; it was a two way tension. But I would argue that a lot of that tension compared to the time that I was growing up and definitely compared to the time that my mother um, and father was growing up, is going away. That east side, west side tension is much less today than it oh, was. Oh, you think so? Because yeah. people still be talking crazy. They still talk, but, but, but it's, I, I want to go back to what It's you more said about joking following. now than it yeah. was back then. Okay. Yeah, okay. back then yeah, it right. was for real, for real. Okay. Now it's more teasing. 
It's okay, more of a, I get it. Yeah, it's more of yeah, a teasing. I, yeah. Hey, you from that east side? That's why yeah, because I do take it personal. Yeah. I, I do get on. I, I will come for people who, who talk about mess about the east side. Right, right. Uh, but I love how you pointed out how black migration mimicked uh, the Jewish migration That's because right. I remember there was a time when mostly it was Jewish people staying in West Bloomfield, and now I have mm-hmm. a lot of black friends who stay in West Bloomfield. That's right. So that really, I, I love yeah, how we have how we have um, transcended those redlining. Uh, barriers that held us back. Yes. So one of the things is um, Jewish people were discriminated against in housing as well. Not to the degree that African-Americans were, but they would be the, in most cases, the last group of what people would call white folks who would be able to move into a neighborhood. Right. So by the time they got into the neighborhood, all of the other white ethnic groups have been into that neighborhood and been out. Mm. And so who's coming after Jewish folks? It's nobody. It's no other white groups left. The only, so if they're going to sell the rent, who are they going to sell the rent to? It's only one group left, mm-hmm. and that's us. Mm-hmm. And so African-Americans would be the group that would come to the areas where Jewish people had just left because Jewish people, in most cases, faced the most, the highest level of discrimination among white groups. Right. Okay. Among white groups, they faced the most discrimination. So they'd be the last white folks to get into a neighborhood. After them, there are no other white folks coming. So that's us. We would end up in what, those neighborhoods. What is your thoughts on, and I love, thank you to everyone watching. Shout out to uh, Miss Marguerite Adams Gray, uh, Charles McKay. Hey, Gigi, my Auntie Claudette. Shout out to everyone watching. Uh, what are your thoughts on changing the landmark names? Because to me, Coleman A. Young is always the city county building. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it now? Huntington Place. That's always going to be Cobo Hall to me. <laughs> um, I don't, this is my thing. Like, yeah. that's just like saying, let's change the name of Bill Isle. To me, mm-hmm. like, the GM building is always going to be the Renaissance building, which, by the way, GM building used to be on what used to be Cat is now mm-hmm. Cadillac Place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, my thing is, I don't know. It's so many traditions that have been formed in these buildings. To me, I don't know if changing the name really does anything. What do you think about that? So I'm, I'm, I'm in most cases, I'm with these changes. So I'm, I'm, uh, when we come, for, let's start with Bell Isle. So Bell Isle wasn't always Bell Isle. So let's start there. Okay. It was Wanna Beezy. That was what it was. It was White Swan Island. That's what the Ottawa named it. It was their land first, and they named it after the, the animals who inhabited the island, White Swans. So they named it White Swan Island. When the French came, Louis de Ville de Quindere names it Ile Couchon, which is Hog Island. He named it that because he's storing, along with the other Frenchmen and French farmers, they're storing their pigs on the island. So the island becomes a farm and a storehouse for French landowners, wealthy mm. French landowners, and many of whom were also slave owners. Mm. Um, so um, the Campaw family, Joseph Campaw, slave owner, um, John R. Williams, he's so also- So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You would have to change the whole right. city then, Jamal. <laughs> so, this, this is my thing. So they it's named so it. so entrenched in the city. Would you change the street too? I mean, like- So they named it, first it was um, Ileo Couchon. So it was Wannabezy by Native Americans, then Ilea Couchon by the French, and then the Campoff family named it Belle Isle in honor of Isabel Cass because Louis Cass and the Campoff family, those families had intermarried. Mm. Louis Cass was the second territorial governor of Michigan. Mm. They intermarried. That's how it becomes Belle Isle. Okay. So Belle Isle is the, is the third name of the island. Okay. So it's been changed and we go, <laughs> and now we all know it by that name. Like that's been the always rock. the name. I mean, it's the rock. Really, <laughs> right. it is the so, rock. But, it, but so that, so I'm good with the name changes. I'm good with Shane Park not being the Aretha Franklin Amphitheater now. I'm good with that because Alexander Shin 
was a slave owner. I'm happy with it really being named. It doesn't change it, though. I'm, it doesn't change the traditions that were made there. That's No, no, thing. it don't change Can't that. Can't be a racist doesn't change the traditions that we... Oh, no, no, that no. We... But honoring, when you name a building after a person, what you're doing is you're honoring that person. So it's not just about the things that happen there. That Those things that happen there are great, whether it's Shane Park, whether it's Aretha Franklin, whether it's don't have no name. Okay. Those things that happen there are still great. But when you were giving honor to a particular person, ought we be giving honor to the Queen of Soul who grew up in the city of Detroit? We ain't had no amphitheater named after her. Why, why wouldn't that, sh that be named after her? So I thought, I think that was a great move. Um, naming the city county building after the first African-American mayor in the city of Detroit, Coleman Young, I think was great because had it not been, I'm going to be clear about this, had that city county building not been named after the Coleman A. Young Municipal Center, it would have been named sometime later after some other mayor of the city of Detroit. Mm, okay. So what are we going to do, pick Coleman Young or no. pick some later mayor? Yeah, because it probably wouldn't have, yeah. Kilpatrick probably wouldn't have, that right. wouldn't have went too well. Right. That probably, so it would have you know, At some point, you not a, a, a city hall is going to get named after somebody. Okay. So it, it started at city county building, but at some point, it was going to get named after somebody. I am happy that it get named after the first African-American mayor of Detroit, the longest-serving mayor of the city of Detroit, Coleman Alexander Young. So I'm happy for that. Kobo, of course, we all know, or we should all know, that... Um, Albert Cobo was a segregationist. He runs for mayor. He wins three elections. He dies in office. He is the mayor that destroyed, is behind the destruction of Black Bottom mm. and, and largely behind the destruction of Hastings Street and Paradise Valley. That begins, the plans for that begin while he's the mayor. They don't actually begin destroying it till after he's passed away, but the plans for it to be destroyed is under his mayority. And so Cobo is behind that. He's, he, he wasn't, it's not a hidden thing. It's just that people have forgotten, but it wasn't a hidden thing of how he felt about the African-American community while he was mayor. So it should have been renamed. But I, I, of course, feel like it should be it should have been renamed outside of people paying for some company coming in and paying for the right. That's my thing. In TCF the, and now Huntington Place. Right. So what is it? It's just pretty much yeah. like going to the highest bidder. That's my thing, because if yeah. you're really trying to change the name, make it have some significant connotation now if that's really the goal yeah that's I, my thing i agree with that so, I, that, so that's my thing that's been a detroit problem for okay, a long time make when it matter when antoine lamode lomay de lamode sewer the cadillac comes to the city of detroit he builds four puncher train do they trois basically where Hart plaza is where cobo is running all the way up to what is now fourth street so that's why it's called fourth street because it was the border of the fort so he builds this fort he names it puncher train after the French nobleman who gave him the money and funded it, funded his mm. whole expedition. That started the tradition in the city of Detroit where we name stuff after the people who pay for uh -huh, it. Yeah. If you pay for it, you can get your name mm. on it. So we have a Comerica Park. We have a Comerica <laughs> Park. We have a Ford Field. We got the Q line, Q line, Q short for Quicken Loans. Mm -hmm. um, we got um, the TCF Center. We right. got all of these because right. these wealthy people want they the Mike Illich School of Business at yep. Wayne State University. This is what I call um, conspicuous compassion. And so there's this thing that we learn in sociology called conspicuous consumption. And the conspicuous consumption basically states that people wear things that are conspicuous, like a polo shirt with the with the man on the horse mm -hmm. or Calvin Klein underwear, and they let their pants hang down a little so you can see that they got Calvin Klein's on. 
Um, conspicuous consumption is the idea that you want people to see how much money you're spending on yeah, stuff. Right. And of course, poor people and, and working class people do it at a higher level than anybody else, but everybody does it. So rich people do it. They buy extravagant things that other rich people notice. Mm-hmm. Middle class folks do it. They get a nice refrigerator or a washer mm-hmm. and dryer yeah. or whatever, um, a, a lawnmower that starts by itself. You know, <laughs> middle, that's middle class folks do. And then, of course, poor people and working class people buy designer clothes. Mm-hmm. And if they get some money, like they, they was born poor and became rich because they was a rapper or a football player and they wear jewelry and gold and all of that. And then people talk about them. It's like, look at that. Spend all that money on that. Well, everybody practices conspicuous consumption. Of course, poor people practice it at a higher level because they don't have as much money. And they were really trying to show that they're not poor. That's what mm. they're trying to do. Mm. The irony. The conspicuous <laughs> consumption. But conspicuous compassion can only be practiced by one group of people. And that's the rich. So poor people don't do that. And that's give money to some institution so that you can have your name on, yeah. the, on, the, mm-hmm. on the institution. You want your name to last in, in, in infinity because you gave that money. And so that we have um, that. I'm in the see, I don't I don't think I'll ever think of it as Huntington Place. <laughs> yeah. So, but okay, yeah, we we you, I, they could have made it Joe Lewis. They could have they could have transferred. I would have loved that if they had done that. Since y'all tore down Joe Lewis, I would that would have been my vote. Why can't that? we make this the Joe Lewis Expo? Center? Because no bank is gonna pay for uh, mm-hmm. uh the right the naming rights mm-hmm. to name it after something else. Mm-hmm. This is a basically a big ad campaign for mm-hmm. them is by having their name on it. I wish it had not gone to the highest bidder. I wish I wish yeah. it had I wish that the 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 um the the board for Kobo had just decided to name it in honor of somebody who was honorable in the city of Detroit. Yeah, like Joe cool. Lewis or yeah. someone else. It absolutely. doesn't matter. I wish that had happened, but money talks and exactly. and that's what ended up happening. Yeah. Absolutely. So what what are some things you've learned about yourself in doing this, Jamon? What is some things that the tour is like do, going around to the different landmarks and just, is this some things that have occurred to you at times that you've learned about yourself or just have surprised you? Like, what has it been like for you? Because I know that has got to just be like astounding when you come across. Like, do you feel like you be pulling, just discovering a gold nugget sometimes? All the time. You, like, all the time. Hey, okay. Yeah, all the time. I'm always, I'm always learning. I'm always learning more than I knew before. Um, sometimes I'm learning it just in the work and going to the places and in archives and in books and research. Sometimes I learn it that way. Sometimes I learn it because people go on my tours and they have information. So they'll say, hey, I grew up on this block and this and such and such happened here. You know, and so I learned a new thing. Or people uh, say, I'm the great grandson of so-and-so. And they, and they give me more information about that person or that event than I had before. So I'm always learning new things. But one thing that is probably, I learned this early in, 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 this, in this business, in this tour business, is that all Detroit's history is connected. So that's what I learned, that there is no way of separating history from something else. So mm. I can call it the Underground Railroad Tour and do a tour on the Underground Railroad. But the reality, if you take that tour, you will learn how the Underground Railroad is so connected to what we call the civil rights movement. And that there, you could argue that there is no real separation between the two. The Underground Railroad is just the early part of the civil rights movement. Mm. Um, the same people or the same families, the same institutions, the same churches, the same neighborhoods, the same institutions are involved in both. So you, you learn that information. For instance, William Lambert 
one of the leaders of the Underground Railroad in the city of Detroit. He's a station master. He's hiding people in his house. He's a um, conductor. He's taking people from one place to another, even over to Canada to get free. He's married to Julia Willoughby Lambert, who is also an Underground Railroad leader. Um, so they're both working their partners. They have a child, Benjamin Willoughby Lambert. So Julia Lambert and her husband, William Lambert, have a child named Benjamin Willoughby Lambert. Benjamin Willoughby Lambert is one of the founders of the Detroit branch of the NAACP. Mm. His parents are Underground Railroad leaders. He's a civil rights leader. One family, one generation. So it's, he was a white man. These are all black folks. Oh, these are these black all black folks. folks. Okay, these I'm like, wait a minute now, hold on. These are okay. all black folks. Yep. All that's another people. thing that's very important. Okay. Whenever you're talking about civil rights history in the city of Detroit, underground railroad uh, history in the city of Detroit, you're talking primarily about black people. Okay. What we've been taught, and what I was taught as a as a young person, was that the underground railroad were white saviors. Yes. Helping Thank you black for clearing people. It. Thank you. Okay. Helping black people escape That's why from I was like, slavery. Were they white or were they black? That's why yep. I didn't make the That's what I learned. Thank you. Growing okay. up. Growing up, I learned that particularly Quakers, they saved black people right. from slavery. They were the poster child. They were for the us. But in reality, in reality when you learn those. about the Underground okay. Railroad, the Underground Railroad was organized, led, and the, the majority of the people involved in it were black people. Mm. So now when we look at Harriet Tubman, Harriet Tubman is not the exception. That's the way the Underground Railroad really works. It's black people who are leaders who have white allies, mm. white folks who are system, but black folks are at the leadership of it. In Detroit, that's even much more the case. And so William Lambert and his wife, Julia, they're both black folks. Um, you can you can Google their pictures and actually see their photographs. So they they live long enough to be photographed, so you can see their photos. And they had a son, Benjamin Willoughby Lambert. He's the one of the founders of the Detroit branch of the NAACP. The parents are Underground Railroad leaders. Child is an uh, uh, NAACP founder, civil rights leader. Same family. One. So you can't separate the history. And as you get black folks who become the majority in Black Bottom and create their business district known as Paradise Valley. This business strip with um, 350 black-owned businesses by the 1930s, um, starting out in the area that we now know is Cobo, uh, is uh, Comerica Park, Ford Field, 36th District Court. That was the original area of Paradise Valley, and of mm -hmm. course the the freeway is there, 75. But that would have been Hastings Street. That area, you will have 350 black-owned businesses by the 1930s in that neighborhood. Mm. A lot of them, these businesses are. Restaurants, stores, hotels, jazz clubs, bars, nightclubs, performance venues. So you get this music center, particularly jazz, big band. What it, the, those jazz musicians, those big band musicians, those will be the the teachers of the Funk Brothers, who will be mm. the main main musicians. For Motown. Motown. So you don't get a Motown without Paradise Valley. You don't get a Paradise Valley without mm. Black Bottom. You don't get a Black Bottom with this, the deep Black history in it without the Underground Railroad. All of these histories are connected. And, of course, we know the first African-American mayor of the city of Detroit, he grew up in Black Bottom, Coleman Young. All this history is connected. You can't separate the history. I can call it the Motown tour, but it, no doubt Black Bottom's going to come up. I can call it the Black Bottom tour, but no doubt Paradise Valley's going to come up. I can call it the Paradise Valley tour, but no doubt um, the Underground Railroad is going to come. It's no way to separate all of these histories. They're all connected. That is an important part of talking about the city of Detroit. I love that. I love that. All of it's interconnected. So mm -hmm. what? let's talk about now and shift a little bit okay. on kind of 
in a way, I don't know if I should describe it as a, like a renaissance we've mm-hmm. had hmm. in the last 10 to 15 years yeah, yeah. with gentrification and just just uh, more um, highlights on black businesses, yeah. how the resurgence of that around the city and so forth in the midst of gentrification mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is kind of crazy because it's been gentrification, but right. it's also been black businesses mm-hmm. increasing as well. The filmmaking industry is booming. Yep. Talk about that as you being someone from Detroit and also as a historian, like, cause it's like kind of two sides of the coin. You're yeah. in it cause you a resident, That's right. but also you're kind of have the objective view because as a historian, you're, you're yeah. doing some research. Yeah. So talk about that. This, this, I guess, evolution of, Detroit from crack Detroit in the 80s to now in the 2020s where, um, you know, we're, we're doing, you know, all these areas. Because I remember when Midtown was new center area. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So talk about the evolution, what you think about, you know, what's happening in Detroit now. So it's a couple of things that, that need to be discussed. And, of course, I'm a historian, so I always have to talk about all of these things in historical context. It's hard for me. Come on, we got about 12 minutes. Yep. But, yep, that's, yep, that's all I was like. Let's, yep. I got to so, get his opinion on Detroit now right. so from then to now. So like, let's talk yeah. about that. So there's never been a time when black folks in the city of Detroit has not had to deal with all of these problematic um, trends and still progress under these prob- problematic trends. So in the, during the period of Paradise Valley, when African-Americans own 350 black businesses in this small little area in the lower east side of the city of Detroit. This is a, this is a time of high level Jim Crow, high level segregation, mm. high level racism. Mm. This is a time when there's businesses that won't hire black people. Black people are the, the, the last to be hired, the first to be fired. These are places, this is a time period when black folks try to go and stay at certain hotels. They can't stay there. They try to... Um, go to a certain kind of bar or club they won't be allowed in. The YMCA will not let black folks join the YMCA, the downtown YMCA. Black people have to start their own YMCA, the St. Antoine YMCA mm. in Paradise Valley. Black women can't join the downtown YWCA. They have to start their own YWCA, the Lucy Thurman YWCA in Paradise Valley. This is a high time. But at this time, black people say, okay, one of their responses to the segregation, one of the responses, not the only one, but one of them is to start their own create their own institutions, create their own businesses, and thrive that way. So now we live in a time in the last 10 years or so, probably a little closer to 15 to 20 now, where downtown and midtown has been this resurgence. When I was growing up, a lot of those businesses were blighted buildings Mm -hmm. or they were abandoned. Mm -hmm. Um, And now you go down to these areas and there's clubs, restaurants, stores, shops, Mm -hmm. all open, bustling, a whole bunch of foot traffic going on. And you have to, on one level, be, man, this is really great that it is all this stuff happening in the city of Detroit. But you know, at the same time, the African-Americans have been blocked out of some of this development, partly because Black Bottom and Paradise Valley were destroyed by federal, state, and local policies. So the city policies, federal government policies, and state policies destroyed this African-American residential neighborhood, this African-American business district, and the main strip that ran through both, Hastings Street. So the government came in and destroyed what black progress. Let's make that clear. It wasn't the Ku Klux Klan who came in and ran black folks out of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. It was the federal government funding the city. But wasn't it actually burned down, though? No, no. Mm-mm. It wasn't they, burned down. No, okay, it wasn't. So it didn't, something similar to Tulsa didn't happen? No, that's not what happened. The, okay, The All right. city, under Mayor Kobo, 
demolished Black Bottom with funding from the federal government, the National Housing Act of 1949, demolished it and forced all the residents out. So that's what happened. Then the federal government funded the building of a freeway. And and they chose to build it on Hastings Street. The city chose to build that freeway down Hastings Street, which was the main business strip for Paradise Valley. So that is what happened to black black folks. It wasn't no race riot, Ku Klux Klan. Detroit has had race riots. I'm not saying they haven't, but that ain't what destroyed Black Bottom in Paradise Valley. So that's that's the first thing. So you get this thing that happened. Now, let's say that didn't happen. Let's say the federal government didn't fund the destruction of Black Bottom and city policy didn't destroy Black Bottom in Paradise Valley and Hastings Street. That didn't happen. And you had 350 Black-owned businesses in the 1920s and 30s. What would that look like in the 20, 100 years later? If you had 350 Black businesses back in the heat of racism time, what would it look like 100 years later? You would have six, seven, 800 Black-owned right, businesses. Right. They wouldn't be billionaires, maybe, not all of them. Maybe a couple of them would be. But you'd have a bunch of millionaires mm. instead of downtown development being really dominated by two or three billionaires. Right. It'd be 30 or 40 right. black million multimillionaires. Right. Right. It still would be developed. Now, let's say something else. A lot of the development that you see in downtown and midtown being done by two or three billionaires and other developers, not just those two or three billionaires, but other developers is being funded by taxpayer money. So the Illich family, of course, Dan Gilbert is the wealthiest Michigander. A lot of their development is not, they're not spending their own money. They're spending our money. So state taxpayer funds are being distributed so that they can build bigger and more. Mm. About half of what it costs to build the LCA, the Little Caesars Arena, came from taxpayers. Mm. About half of that money, about $400 million of it, came from taxpayer money. So now... Mm. That don't sound right. That don't sound Now fair. let's say let's billionaires getting taxpayer money. That's right. That's uh, what happens ooh. in the city of Detroit. Mm. Now let's say those black um, business owners in Paradise Valley, not only they weren't run out by urban renewal in the building of a freeway, let's say that they, not only were they not run out from that, that they got those taxpayer $400 million in taxpayer funds to expand their businesses. Now what would downtown invent? It would still be developed. We still have businesses and shops and restaurants. It just would look different. The owners would look different. Yep. The kind of businesses would look different. It would be more diverse than what it is now. Mm-hmm. So that, let's be clear about that. But like I said, black folks thrived. They made themselves thrive, even during this time of intense discrimination, during the Jim Crow era in the 1920s and 30s when black people couldn't get certain kind of jobs. They couldn't live wherever they wanted to. They couldn't go and uh, be patrons at certain kinds of businesses. Now we got gentrification, of course. We got billionaires getting taxpayer funds for their development ideas. And African Americans being locked out of that, and so we still see black folks persevering in this yep, environment, absolutely. building um, business strips. Particularly, of course, the most well-known business strip is the Avenue of Fashion. That business strip, which is largely African American-owned, they are persevering in a climate that has not been made for them. It has not been made um, comfortable for them. There, mm-hmm. there have to be. Even though they're business folks, they got to be civil rights activists to yeah. run to run a business. Yeah, you know, you can't just run a you can't just be good at at, at being a baker. You just can't be good at making clothes. You also got to get on the on the on the battleground and fight for the same kinds of resources that other folks get just from showing up yeah. to the party. They just show up 
and they get all the resources. You got to fight for those things. And that's what black folks have been doing in the city of Detroit. That's historically what black folks have been doing in the city of Detroit. And they're still doing it to this day. Absolutely. And I want to, I just, I do appreciate how we have, like I said, it seems like it's been a resurgence. And I have mm -hmm. to say shout out to my best friend, Gigi, who in a way predicted this. Um, back in the early 2000s, she was like, just wait, in the next 10 to 15 years, Detroit is going to be like back on the map. Mm -hmm. And we are getting there, but it's still, I wish um, more of that progress was in the inner city. That's true. That's, But I like to see the businesses that are on Six Mile in Wyoming, mm -hmm. the businesses that are, you know, mm -hmm. on Dexter, mm -hmm. uh, on Joy Road. I like to see them in the on Mac Avenue. Mm -hmm. That's, I loved, um, and by the way, you were over in my old, on Mac and Van Dyke when mm -hmm. you were doing did the story. Shout out to Chris Walker. Okay. On food desert. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Around yep. the city. That's right. So I just wish that uh more of this progression, this yeah. avenue of fashion type stuff type situations were more in yeah. the neighborhood. Yeah, I do. I agree. Because and it seems like a lot of that stuff is still kind of on the outskirts. Because yeah, it's uneven. realistically that's about eight mile and yeah, it's, a you know, that's, it's an so, uneven distribution. Yeah. So it's an uneven development. We got areas in the city of Detroit that are booming. Right. And, and then others that up, are and just others like that are almost gone. And right. there's, you know, there's streets that have no house left on it. Right. Uh, so yeah. we would like to see this much more um evenly distributed throughout the city. This yeah. development, this housing development, this business development. These institutions, schools being renewed and, right. and churches being built. Um, we would like to see that happening much more throughout the city of Detroit, not just in these particular um, strips of the city of Detroit. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's that's a challenge. And, of course, that's a challenge mm -hmm. that has, has been a challenge for the city of Detroit for decades. I don't know. Yeah. So I wish we could get... Um... Keep going, Jamon, but we've only got an hour. That's right. And um, this is not this is just part one, actually. Okay. Because we can't encompass <laughs> no. everything. Yeah, it's too much. It's too much. But I know it's been so informative. And I love um, like I said, when you posted the other day, um, how you get a lot of your information from actual archives. You actually go to books, you actually go to the Detroit Public Library. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some other places, places that you go to 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 get those archives. Yeah, so so archival research is is the foundation of doing historical research. So for Detroit, our, our most historians would tell you the Burton the Burton Library, the Burton Archives, which are housed inside of the main branch of the Detroit Public Library okay. on Woodward. That's that's step one. The Detroit Historical Museum also has archives, so you would go to their archives. Um, the Walter. And you just P need to be a citizen. You can just come in and ask, like, can I look this up? So it's a way that you have to okay. request these things. But yes, it's okay. a, But it, at some point, as a citizen, you can have you can get access to those archives. Although you can't walk out the door, you can go in and and look at some of that research. Okay. A lot of it is online as well. Uh, so they put a lot of their research online. So it is a way to get it that way as well. The Walter P. Ruther archives at Wayne State University. Mm -hmm. So those, that's like a little corner. They're all right next to each other. Okay, Burton, good. Walter P. Ruther, Detroit Historical Museum. That little corner is the archival corner for historians in the city of Detroit, particularly historians who do what I do. Um, the E. Azalea Hackley Collection is also at the main branch of Detroit Public Library, another place to do a lot of research. The Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History also has archives. And so that would be another place you can do a lot of research. And then, of course, sometimes you got to go to the universities. You got to go to Michigan State University. You got to go to U of M, the Benton. Um, 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 library at um at at um U of M. You got to go to these other places, and 
and do more research. And of course, if you might have to go to the Library of Congress or get some of their files and some of their um, information as well. But you start right here in the city of Detroit. That's more, you, you find much more information than you can find in any books. But books are the next level. So you okay, go to books sure. and you read books about the city of Detroit. Detroit Almanac is very important. I think everybody should have that. The Detroit Almanac um, by uh, Peter Gavrilovich and Bill McGraw. Um, Black Detroit by her boy, all of the works of Ken Coleman on this day in African-American history in Detroit. Um, that's a very important book. It, I mean, there's many others. Um, the Fluid Frontier about the Underground Railroad in the city of Detroit. That's another very important book that people ought to have about the city of Detroit. Um, and there's many others. I can't name them all. But yeah. these, are the, uh, these will give you a good start in Detroit history as well, in the books. And once you move from the books, um, you would go, if you're watching films, documentaries, start with documentaries. Don't start with the feature films like Detroit <laughs> and BMF no, no. and um, um, what's the other movies about the city, uh, feature films about the city of Detroit. But don't, don't start with those. Not that they're bad, the temptations. They're not bad, but start with the documentaries about the to city get of more accurate because yeah. you can get more accurate information and you get somewhere where you can begin doing some more research on your own when you see that historian on that documentary talking many cases that historian has written some stuff about detroit now you can go um research that historian and see what he's written or she's written about the city of detroit and read those writings and then look at the footnotes that are in those writings and find more information about the city of detroit that'll take you down a rabbit hole that will give you a lot of information, much more than you can get from a feature film. But feature films aren't bad. They're a good introduction to the city of Detroit's history. So if you watch some feature film, BMF or um, Detroit, um, which was about the, the raid at the Algiers mm -hmm. Motel, if you read, if you watch any feature film or even the movie that I was historical consultant of, um, No Sudden Move, you watch those movies, they're a good introduction to a part of Detroit's history. But if don't let don't ever let that be the be all end all of what you learned about the city of Detroit. I love it. Well, thank you, Jamon. I really appreciate you. Please tell people where they can find you. Okay. Yes, you can find me. And um, you have an event coming up. Yep, yep. You can find me on Facebook. Black Scroll Network History and Tours is the Facebook page, but I'm also there, Jamon Jordan, um, on Facebook. And you can find my events on eventbrite.com slash black scroll. And I have, um, I'm going to be discussing the history of Black Bottom in Paradise Valley. So a much more in-depth discussion about that neighborhood next week on Thursday at 7 p.m. at the Huntington Woods Public Library. It's free and open to the public. I love it. And just one last thing I wanted to end on a fun note. Mm -hmm. Since hip-hop is 50 years old. That's right. And we both from the same generation, kind of, sort of. I mean, I know yeah. you're a little older than yep, me. Yep, but a little bit. Um, I've seen a lot of the 80s and 90s lyrics yeah. you be putting up there. That's I'm like, right. Jamon is speaking to me. So, <laughs> right quick, Jamon. Right. Who was your favorite hip-hop artist? Um, uh, Rakim. Rakim is my favorite rapper. I love it, rapper. the God. Yeah. yeah, he is my favorite <laughs> the rapper. God, yeah. okay. No, no, no questions asked. But the there's God a lot MC. of other folks that I write there, right next to him. Like I, I'm, a, I grew up an LL Cool J fan, Run DMC fan. So they right there, you know, right in there, right there next to him. So I love yeah. it. I love it. Yeah, we can't. I can't argue with the God though. Right. He's definitely in my top five. That's good. I don't That's know good. if I could ever say who my most favorite is. Yes, yeah, it's, it's always difficult. It, it depends on it the depends. mood. Yeah, and, you know, right. I, I feel that. Yeah, it'd be that. hard to like, I hate when people like that. the greatest one. I'm like, I have to admit depends. that I am, I am definitely a 
80s bias. I yes. have an 80s bias. I mean, bias, it's 80s and sure. 90s. That's why yep, I said, yep. and to kind of backtrack, you're right. The 80s, late 80s is really when the conscious. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was telling my daughter. It's not that the music was better. It's just that we had more of a variety. That's true. You had your conscious. You had your bubblegum. You had mm-hmm. your underground. You mm-hmm. had your, your, your gangster rap. Like, mm-hmm. it was just so many um, levels to it. So, that's true. That's true. Again, I thank you, Jamon. Thank you. Um, thank y'all you make so sure much. y'all follow Jamon. Make sure we... Book some of these tours. Yep. Really appreciate it. And I'm going to have to go on a tour. I think my mom and them will probably love that. Oh, yeah, that would be great. We need to go on a tour. So, But thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Rocky's Reality. Next week, we got two shows. So next week, we are back uh, with Rashida the Glam Doctor. So see you all soon. Thanks for watching. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Jamon. Take care. All right.